good to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 31, the last chapter in 1 Samuel, and we'll also be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 1. As you're turning to that passage, 1 Samuel chapter 31, I wanted to briefly give us kind of a um, a view of where we're headed in the next uh, couple of weeks, Lord willing. So um, this week we are looking at, uh, like I mentioned, the final chapter of 31. We've been in 1 Samuel for some time now. And really what happens in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel weds so nicely with the end of 1 Samuel. So we're going we're gonna to look at these two chapters. And then next week, the hope was, uh, as we worked through uh, the book of 1 Samuel, to see David's anointing as king and then also to touch upon the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So after we, we kind of, this is going to be kind of the, the ending of this series in 1 Samuel. Um, that will take us right up to the end of resting month. And then we are excited in the month of September, which we normally refer to as missions month, to... Um, have a, a sermon series that's really dedicated on answering the question, what is the mission of the church? And so for the month of September, through that time of, of thinking and praying towards missions, that's going to be the, the theme. And then coming off of September, uh, the, the normal rhythm of preaching here is we like to be in the Old Testament and then get back into the New Testament and continue that pattern seeking to preach the, the full and whole counsel of God. And so we're going to start in October a series uh, in Hebrews, the, the letter to the Hebrews. So we're looking forward to that. We invite you to, to be praying towards that, that end and preparation. Uh, so finishing up our first Samuel study in uh, the next couple weeks, moving into Missions Month, and then in October, Lord willing, launching into the letter to the Hebrews. So I hope I hope that what's the appetite of excitement of where we're headed in, in God's word, and we are also looking forward to that. Okay, now we have our Bibles open. Please follow along as I read from God's word. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab, and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead... He also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on that same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day... When the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines 
to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there, was leaning, uh, there Saul was leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me. And he called me, and I answered him, Here am I. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where did you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turns not back, and the sword of Saul returns not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. 
how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. Hear the word of the Lord. There is much sorrow in these two chapters. And Ralph, uh, Dale Ralph Davis, in his helpful commentary, he comments on this sorrow, this, this grief, that not only the family of Saul is experiencing, but the whole household of Israel. There is much grief and sorrow. And he, he writes, grief, it not only erupts abruptly, like we see in verses 11 and 12, here again, then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel. It, it erupts, but he goes on to say it also abides. Grief and sorrow both erupts and you, you respond, but it also abides. It lingers. And because it abides, there must be some mechanism some procedures by which God's people can express their grief. That is what David does in this passage. So we're, we're going to look at David's lament and use that as our guide to look at chapters 31 of 1 Samuel and chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. In his lament over Israel, Saul, and Jonathan, he provides a vehicle by which Israel can continue to mourn as the grief and sorrow abides it continues this is a mechanism a tool given by David to the people the sorrows and wounds of God's people received from their losses are not and we can all testify to this are not miraculously healed after just a short time and then it's released and sometimes we're guilty in the church to have impatience towards those who are experiencing this heavy grief. So this lament form of the Bible assumes that our grief is deep and ongoing, and it invites us to enter the discipline of expressing that grief with words, words that convey anguish. Giving David here gives us images that, that picture our despair or picture the despair of the people of Israel. Whether it's in written prayers that verbalize the struggle or the way in which he constructs this particular lament, God's people have these tools in scripture to use as we deal with ongoing abiding grief. And so as we look at what David pens, it really is a helpful outline uh, so to speak, to help us enter into what, what has transpired in these two chapters. A lot has happened that if you have not been working through 1 Samuel, could, could seem quite, quite alarming. And so hopefully, by working through the grief that he lays out, the sorrow, uh, we'll, we'll kind of get our bearing on where we've been and what has transpired here before us. The first thing that he does in the first few verses of this lament that starts in verse 19 of 2 Samuel chapter 1, is he displays grief 
and highlights disgrace. And so within sorrow, within grief, grief, there are so many layers to our experience. We can resonate with this. Maybe there isn't particularly disgrace in whatever grief or sorrow you're experiencing, but it is comprehensive in that what we deal with in this life touches our lives and, and impacts us in so many different ways. And most of the time, whatever we've experienced is, is mingled or intertwined with some form of, of sin. And so what we see here is that there is grief clearly, and the people of Israel are to, to latch on to these words of David and realize that there is disgrace as well in what has happened on Mount Gilboa. So if you see in verses 19 and 20, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. A side note here, this saying, um, until I, I was in seminary, I had never really, I, I had read through the Bible, but ne never really latched on to this particular saying, but I had a professor if there was anything that, that was bad and should not be told aloud, he would always reference this particular passage memorized. He would say, tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. It is a disgrace. We do not want this to go public. David is saying what has happened on Mount Gilboa and what the Philistines are using to, to uh, rejoice in should not be so. So David and every uh, Israelite knows that not only in Israel is this a disgrace, but, but really it's a highlight that it's, it's Israel's God that is being disgraced in this particular situation. So it's a, it's a recognition in these first few verses of what's happening here in this lament that Israel's shame is a religious shame. It's not just, it's not just that they lost a military battle. There's so much more happening here, um, and we want to see that. Because after the battle in, in 1 Samuel chapter 31, we read that uh, the Philistines sent messengers throughout the land to carry the good news. You could, you could say the same word, gospel. To carry the gospel, good news, it wasn't the good news of the gospel that we believe in, but it was their gospel good news of what had happened, and they're carrying it throughout the land in the house of their idols, and to all the people. And so here's the question. What exactly happened on Mount Gilboa? Because what's really interesting about our two chapters here is we have two different tales, two different stories being told of what actually transpired. The death of Saul is, is the same in both stories, but how that came about is different. And so getting to kind of the bottom of, okay, is, is it what we read from the author in chapter 31, or is it from the mouth of the Amalekite, how this all actually went down? It's good for us to kind of wrestle with that as we're seeing that some of the facts are not lining up. Uh, and as we do, um, there was a, a, a commentator who helped us um, kind of think through this for a moment, and he just said, if, if you've paid attention to the book of 1 Samuel thus far, uh, anytime you've run into a Malachite, it has not gone well for the people of God. And so anytime you hear something coming out of the mouth of the Malachite, 
And then you have the narrator, narrator uh, of this story, the writer, also giving you his own description. By default, you should always listen to the writer of 1 Samuel and not the mouth of the Amalekite. And I think that's wise wisdom as we look at what has transpired, given, uh, told from two different mouths. Who are we to believe? And the other question he poses, have you ever met an Amalekite that you could actually trust? It should be kind of this blaring red flag of, okay, let's, let's actually realize that what happens and what's told in 1 Samuel chapter 31 is the truth. And what the Amalekites said was a lie to his shame that led to his death. Okay, so we look at chapter 31. And chapter 31 gives us the historical sketch of what happened on the last day of Saul's life. But to even just kind of back up a little bit more, how did we get here with King Saul? How did, how did we get to this point where this is the last day of his life? From the human side of things, Saul was a man splendidly gifted by God, given a wonderful opportunity and had a most promising prospect. We were, we were given a description of his looks. Even concerning his looks, we are told that there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he from his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people of Israel, 1 Samuel chapter 9. Regarding his acceptability unto his people, we read that when Samuel, the prophet, set him before the people, all the people shouted, long live the king, in chapter 10. More than that, they went on with him, um, and, and along with him was a band of men whose hearts God has ch had touched chapter 10, verse 26, giving this young king favor in their eyes. Not only so, but we read from 1 Samuel, the spirit of the Lord came upon Saul, chapter 11, verse 6, equipping him for the office of king and giving proof that God was ready to act if Saul was ready to submit. Yet even with these high privileges, we see the deceitfulness of sin wreaking havoc in the life of Saul. In the 13th chapter of 1 Samuel, we find Saul tested as king and found wanting. The prophet Samuel left him for a little while, bidding him to go to Gilgal and wait for him there. Do you remember this? Till he should come and offer the proper sacrifices. We are told he remained seven days according to this, the time set by Samuel. But then we read, Samuel did not come when Saul thought he would, and the people scattered from him. Having lost their confidence in the king to lead them against the Philistines at that time, desperate at the delay of Samuel, Saul presumptuously acted in the prophet's place. Do you remember this? And said, bring me here a burnt offering and peace offering, and he offered the burnt offering. In doing so, he abandoned the word of the Lord and he broke the first command that he had been given from God. In the 15th chapter of 1 Samuel, we see him tested again by a command from the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. This is going way back in the story of Israel. Now Saul, go and strike down the uh, Amalekites and devote them to destruction and all that they have. Do not spare them, 
but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. But again, he disobeyed. Saul and the people spared Agag, the king, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. And then we hear from the prophet Samuel, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Saul, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. From that point on, Saul rapidly went from bad to worse, worse, turning against David. We read several chapters, years of him pursuing David, relentlessly seeking his life, even shedding the blood of the priests in chapter 22. When we last left Saul, if you've been following along in our series, when we last left him in chapter 28, he was eating with a medium, the witch of Endor, and hearing from the dead and buried Samuel the devastating words that were to hang heavily over the following day, which is the day that we read in chapter 31. This is what is said to him in chapter 28. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of, the, of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. And so what we read in chapter 31 is that divine account of everything that God said would happen to King Saul. Now, if you're looking at both chapter 31 and then 2 Samuel chapter 1, there is great irony in all that we've just been reminded of in the person that comes to David to tell him the news of King Saul's death. Think about this for a moment. Saul lost his kingdom because he plundered the Amalekites. And this was against God's strict orders. Now, what did that Amalekite come and bring to David? He, an Amalekite, had plundered King Saul and brings the crown and the armlet to David, thinking in his mind that he was going to gain David's favor and be rewarded. But just to see that that scene, that irony unfold of where Saul's rebellion is made known and come to light and God's judgment upon it, and then to see this Amalekite come and bring news of King Saul's death to David. John Calvin writes, This was a just punishment which God sent Saul in accordance with his sin. After Saul's death, God sent a man of this very nation, who snatched the crown and royal uh, ornaments from his body so that he was left an even greater humiliation, disgrace in the midst of grief. 
Mount Gilboa also exposes the folly of Israel's idolatry. So just briefly, think for a moment about what has happened in the life of Israel for for Saul to end up as their king. Israel had craved a king, longed for royalty that looked like all the other nations. That's what they longed for. That was the desire of their hearts collectively. They called it progress. God named it idolatry. So chapter 31 shows where when a people trust in a political process, as such, this king that they longed for and what it brings to a people, God is displaying to them in all that has transpired, this is disgraceful. This should leave a sour taste in your mouth and drive you back again to the only true king, which is God and God alone. Again, I love the way Dale Ralph Davis sums this part up. This is going to take just a moment to think about what's happened in 1 Samuel. But some idols like Dagon, if you remember when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the temple of Dagon, what actually happened? He says, some idols like Dagon lie shattered before the Ark of Yahweh. Other idols lie slain on Mount Gilboa. So the, the leftovers, the, the, the effects of what happened on Mount Gilboa is to testify to the people of Israel just as the, the, the idol Dagon being shattered before the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, which was uh, the, the representation or display of his glory, that same kind of imagery is to, to really set into the minds and hearts of God's people. That when they look and remember what transpired in Mount Gilboa and what led to that, that should be that same type of reminder of the disgrace of pursuing something other than God and his plan. All of this matters, not only because it is sad, but because it constitutes the fulfillment of the Lord's word. All that happens here is the fulfillment of God's word. And we've, we've struck this, this note several times, but none of this is happening by happenstance or coincidence. All that happens to King Saul, the result of all of his activity, is exactly what the Lord said would, say, said would happen. This is God's word coming to fulfillment. So Israel may fall to the Philistines, Saul may even fall on his own sword, but when we see the word of the Lord unfold, it will not fall. It will and has surely come to pass. So also, when we're looking at this lament, we see grief, and in the midst of David's grief, he writes also, he's written about the disgrace, he's also writing about gratefulness. So in the midst of sorrow and grief, David is able to actually identify evidences of God's grace and mercy even in the midst of a horrific time of suffering. I mean, think about what actually happened post-war. Not only were they defeated by the Philistines, but once Israel caught sight of what happened, they began to leave all of the places that they occupied. And the Philistines are coming back in and taking over their homes 
their, their, their livelihoods, all of that is being uprooted at this point in time. And yet, David is striking this note of sorrow mixed even with gratefulness. And how he does it in these verses, verses 22 through 25, is he's recognizing what God has provided his people by referencing the kingly office and all that God accomplished through Jonathan and his father. Now, some would say, well, isn't that a contradiction from where we just spent quite a few minutes rehearsing all that Saul did wrong? Well, this is, this is that way of David, even in the midst of grief and disgrace, identifying evidences of God's mercy. That is such an important exercise for the people of God. To be able to ask the Lord to give you eyes to see where he is still moving and working and providing and meeting your needs in the midst of the hardest of grief. So hear these verses again. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan beloved and lovely. In life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. So just a few things that we can pull out from these verses. First, thinking about Jonathan. Jonathan really is the focus of this lament. Saul is mentioned, yes, but there is a, a real focus on Jonathan, both his relationship with David that we'll see, but also how he lived his life as the son of the king and in the midst of knowing that there is the Lord's anointed to come in David. Jonathan had an early victory. This is also taking us back into 1 Samuel. This is like the end of a series and, and rewinding and hitting points along the way. In chapter 13, if you remember, Jonathan led a great defeat against the Philistine garrison. And we hear in that chapter that all of Israel heard that it was Saul that had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And there was this joint um, celebration that even Jonathan, the son of the king, what he accomplished at, at large, Saul and his kingdom is, is, is being acknowledged for the good that is happening. And so David makes note of this, that they were not divided, that, that what, David, or what Jonathan did was he served the king faithfully, and the Lord blessed that. Even earlier, there were evidences of God's blessing when Saul was doing what was right. Now, there are not very many times that we see this, but this is an example that actually ties well into chapter 31. So back in 1 Samuel chapter 11, if you remember, because some people did not forget, the people of Jabesh-Gilead had never forgotten this. There was an evil ruler of the Ammonites, Nahash, cruel man, if you remember, and when he threatened Jabesh-Gilead, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, and he marched to their rescue. Saul's reign began, this was at the beginning, with his deliverance of Jabesh. And it ends 
with Jabesh Gilead's deliverance of Saul's body in chapter 31. Do you all remember reading that or hearing it read? What happened in, in 1 Samuel 31 after the Philistines had just made a mockery of the bodies. It was the men of Jabesh Gilead remembering what Saul had done. Giving evidence that there actually was God's favor and blessing when Saul was doing what he was supposed to do. And they not only rejoiced and remembered, but they actually in active pursuit went to try to make things right. The spirit may have departed from Saul, but there was a time when he was their savior and they remained grateful and gave him a proper burial and even fasted several days because that was what was in order in remembering what God had done through this king. Another way we see this grief mixed or mingled with gratefulness put on display is how David honored the crown, honored the Lord's anointed, that office, because it was God who anointed it. And where we see that probably most clearly, not as much in the lament, but what happens in chapter 1 in his engagement with the Amalekite who brings the news of Saul's death. So the Amalekite miscalculated horribly in this situation. The young man claimed that it was he and not Saul who delivered the final blow. I happened to be on the battlefield. And if you just kind of think about that, he probably was on the back end of the battle, like a scavenger among the dead, picking out things of of value. And now he has brought the crown and the royal armband to David, expecting to be well rewarded for his actions. He assumes, and assumes wrongly, that David is desperate at this point to become king and would be delighted with the man who paves the way for that to happen. We also know from 1 Samuel that David had consistently refused. Remember all those times where he was given opportunity to snatch the crown from Saul, to put Saul to rest. David was so conscious stricken after merely cutting, cutting off the corner of Saul's robe, if you remember. And that reflected how much he uh, revered the, the Lord's anointed, what God had done. God moved, God had anointed Saul as king, and it was in honoring of the Lord that he would not harm the Lord's anointed. And so in David's response, in having his man go and strike down this Amalekite, that is actually a testimony to the gratefulness that David had for what God had instituted, what God had made in the life of King Saul and his kingdom. That is God testifying, or that is David testifying to, to God's goodness, even in the midst of sorrow and grief and grief. This reminds us as God's people to treat as holy all those things set apart by God. That office was set apart by God. David recognized that and he honored that. We should honor the word of God as holy. And the ordinances, as we saw baptism, and we will in just a few minutes experience the Lord's Supper, we honor those things and treat them as holy. The New Testament tells us to honor those set apart for spiritual leadership, those who labor in the teaching of the word of God, 
Children should honor their father and their mother. God has given them that governance over the child. We are to honor all those whom God has placed in proper authority over us. And I want us to hear this again. We've, we've made note of this throughout this study. This includes civil leaders, even those who are incompetent and ungodly. The way that David, in this lament, is able to still honor King Saul, I think is a great example for us. Because it is not that David is blind to all of the deficiencies in Saul's life. That is not the truth. But there is an honoring because it is God who had placed him there in that position for such a time. So the way that we talk about the men and women who lead our country in different capacities, local and nationally, matter. Whether or not you think that they are competent or godly, I needed to hear that this week and repent. David gives us an example in the midst of grief of still having gratitude. If we think that David's death sentence on the Amalekite was excessive or harsh, I think we fail to realize the importance of the, the anointed king of God's people. And then we see grief mixed with love. David graciously, in this lament, allowed Jonathan's character to color Saul's character. He, he graciously focuses in on Jonathan and able to give God praise for all that happened in Saul's rule and kingship. Jonathan was totally devoted to David's becoming king over Israel, while at the same time serving his father as king. Nowhere can one uh, find a better summary of Jonathan's attitude than when he encouraged his good friend in the woods of Ziph. We've talked a lot about 1 Samuel 23, the woods of Ziph, and there is a statement that Jonathan makes to David that we need to hear again. He says, I will be second. I, I know, David, that you will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. That statement, I will be second, really characterizes Jonathan's whole approach to life in the kingdom. Jonathan, by God's grace, was able to get over and work through the reality that he was the heir to the throne according to the flesh and according to the way kings uh, kingdoms function normally. And yet God revealed to him that it's not you, Jonathan, but it's going to actually be David, Saul's servant, who's going to be the king. And so God's grace upon Jonathan's life allowed him to posture himself in gladly recognizing that David would be king and he would be second. And we may note of this in the past, but this reminds us of John the Baptist the forerunner to Jesus Christ, and the way that he positioned himself. I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of the one who is coming. And he was, he was so glad to just be, just be one of the groomsmen for the, bri for the bridegroom. He was so glad to be able to tell of the one who was coming. And Jonathan's life was that type of testimony, a humility that only can come from God's grace upon a person's life. 
knowing his rightful place in the kingdom and gladly giving it to the one who the Lord has anointed. They were joined by a shared passion for the Lord and his people. That was this friendship that when we read things like, your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women, unfortunately our sinful flesh takes us into an arena that it should not take us. There was such a shared devotion and passion for the Lord and his people that united these two brothers in such a way that some of us have never experienced friendship to be. I pray that we would even get a glimpse of that type of brotherhood or sisterhood. Jonathan recognized that the anointing of the Lord was upon David and eagerly was subordinate to what God was doing in their midst. And although he did not get to function in that role because he was slain in chapter 31, that was what David was lamenting and helping the people remember as they go forward. Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul, we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 18. David, therefore, had every reason to grieve the death of Jonathan, whose loyalty to God's kingdom had even cost him his very life on Mount Gilboa. There's really no way in looking at chapter 31 of 1 Samuel and chapter 1 of 2 Samuel to get away from the theme of of death and, and grief and sorrow. And I want us to hear this morning, death will often exert a profound influence on those who come near it. And in my own life this year, that is so true. Death will often exert a profound influence on those who come near it. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we hear this, and I want us to please hear this. There's a contrast of wisdom and folly. We're told in chapter 7, verse 1, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind." and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. I hope you understand that that contrast. In the flesh, what sounds so much better is for it to just be fun and airy and light, the house of mirth. And God in his word is helping us understand that there is much that is happening for our good in the house of mourning. Yet we always want to run away from that, and he's actually doing a work in the midst of that. We are far from Mount Gilboa. But David's charge to remember Gilboa still places its claim upon us. David knew that sorrow impacts us in ways that triviality, the house of mirth, can never begin to touch. I want us, in closing, to experience, to consider the experience of a young Adoniram Judson. 
on a fateful night in 1808. He was lodging at an inn. He learned that a man next door was struggling in the throes of death. Listening to the dreadful sounds coming through the wall, Judson wrestled with his thoughts. A brilliant student at Providence College, Judson had become enthralled with the company of students who had embraced the Enlightenment ideas from Europe, particularly a witty upperclassman, Jacob Ames, who had persuaded Adoniram to adopt deism, which is this idea of an absent God. On his 20th birthday, Judson broke his parents' hearts with the news that he had abandoned the Christian faith of his youth and was moving to New York City to pursue a life of pleasure, working in the theater. It was during this time that Judson sojourned into this inn at this particular night with this dying neighbor. Hearing the terrible distress, he wondered whether the man was prepared to die. Moans pressed or passed through the walls, and he could hear the man's restless struggling. What would his free-thinking friend, Ames, say to dismiss his anxiety and remove his concerns about eternity? Was the man next door a Christian? Or was he, like Judson, one who had, had despised the prayers of his godly mother and rejected the gospel for a sophisticated worldly creed? Before long, he began to wonder about his own fate in death, desperately trying to counter these superstitious illusions with the clever replies of the deist Imes. Finally, the light of dawn entered Judson's chamber, and the distressing sounds from the next door came to an end. Gathering his things, he prepared to put the stressful ordeal behind him. On the way out, however, he passed the innkeeper and asked about the man next door. He is gone, poor fellow, was the reply. The doctor said he probably wouldn't survive the night. Do you know who he was, Judson asked. Oh, yes, a young man from the college in Providence, came the reply. Name was Imes, Jacob Imes. One biography prescribes or provides the the postscript to this remarkable situation that, that transpired. Judson could hardly move. He stayed there for hours pondering the death of his unbelieving friend. If his friend was right, this would have all just been a meaningless event. But Judson could not believe it. That hell should open in that country inn and snatch Jacob Imes, his dearest friend and guide, from the, from the next bed, this could not, simply could not be pure coincidence. The presence of death had crossed the path of his life and gripped him and changed him forever. And so my prayer as I've been preparing for this sermon is the urgent reality of divine judgment in death that we see in this passage, how it shook Adoniram Judson, may it also shake us from our spiritual slumber. If it does, it is by God's grace when you begin thinking of death, the reality of who he is and what you deserve because of your sin, it is God's grace that you would be shaken from your spiritual slumber this 
very day. It is because of this same judgment that the Bible urges all people to turn to Christ for forgiveness of our sins. There is a question posed in Acts chapter 16, and it is probably one of the most important questions of all. What must I do to be saved? And the answer follows in verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There is no other way for you to have peace with God without the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. May this be the day where there is urgency and we are shaken from our spiritual slumber. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. Seeing the end of 1 Samuel and beginning of 2 Samuel, there is much grief and sorrow as we think about the life of King Saul. Father, wake us from our spiritual slumber. Impress upon us what you would have us think hard about in reflecting on Saul and Jonathan and David. Help us to think about the wages of sin, the reality of your holy judgment, and where deliverance is found. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Father, help us to lay it to heart, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.